You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book. You can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. And welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we're still waiting for the beat to drop. My name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Ben Nectar, as he prefers to be called Mr. Steal Your Girl, Benedict. <laughs> Literally, not, uh, not once. Benedict, when's the last time I stole you someone's passed girl? the bar exam? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, that would be every day. The answer, the answer day. to the answer to to both. Well, once, <laughs> once, and now she's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. Good choice, my man. She's the only one who actually listens exactly. to these episodes and, from your family. And uh, <laughs> and the last, the, the answer to your other question, which is how many times I've passed the Missouri bar, is twice actually. Oh, oh really? <laughs> oh, really? Full of shit. You are full of shit. Sorry, do you want to... Uh, uh, people know you're in... People know where you are. Yeah, I'm in good. Missouri. I don't care if people know what state I'm okay. in. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't the real question, though. Uh, but Benedict, I will ask the real question okay. now. Because we've already stumbled into the beginning of this episode. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite candy bar? Ooh, favorite candy bar. Um, I like a Take 5. Is that what they're called? Take 5? Take 5? Yeah, I feel like I've heard of a take five. Is that a wafer thing? No, it's it's a it's a pretzel, a salted uh, like like Mm. a pretzel covered in like caramel and chocolate. I'm ninety percent sure we have them here in the U.S. But no, they're 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 a U.S. (laughs) thing. They're not a U.K. thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, it's just not one of those that's really on my radar. It's not in my stable of uh, go to candy. In the in the U.K. before I was aware of take fives. I think probably you'd have got me with a Snickers. You can never go. Look, Snickers is like the solid go-to. You can never go wrong with a Snickers. Yeah. It'll always satisfy. You won't be Danny DeVito anymore. Whatever those commercials were that they used to do. Don't be hangry, Snickers. Yeah, that thing. Throw that Snickers thing. at your face. You're fine. Yeah, um, Geico, lizard, Geico. you know. Yeah, no, so probably that. Or, um, yeah, no, probably, probably Snickers, to be honest. But, but right. the, everything is different. Like I, I, I didn't realize that Mars bars are Mars bar. I forget which you way mean- around it is, but Mars bars are different in the UK and the US. No, Milky Ways are different in the UK and the US. Is is that because Milky Way is some British slang for a sex act? Yeah, you're not allowed to say until after eight p.m. on the BBC. Nine p.m. Is that what Nine p.m. on okay. the BBC? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I think our your. Uh, your Milky Way is what we call Mars. We call Mars Mil- 
no, I don't think anyone like in the US eats Mars bars. Okay. I don't think anybody meets, eats Mars it's bars. It's not a thing. Yeah, so I think we call Milky Ways Mars Mars bars. And then our, okay. our Milky Way is something completely different. It's just like, here's a small <laughs> cloud of white nougat. And that's uh, uh, surrounded in really Did you say sweet nougat. Yeah, nougat. Nougat. <laughs> really sweet nougat. 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 You dink. Okay. Uh, with really sweet milk chocolate around it. Oh, I mean, it sounds good. I'd eat it. I'd eat it. I, I'll eat any candy bar. Really, um, that's, that's how I feel about the thing. But my go-to, oh, which yep. you declined to ask me about, it's is I the payday. Care. It's the payday. Okay. Caramel and peanuts. Oh, just just heaven. Just can't beat it. That saltiness that's with the far. sweet. I think Take Five has peanuts in it somehow. It's peanut butter. No. Yeah, peanut butter. A payday is entirely covered in peanuts. Gotcha, gotcha, it's gotcha. all it's all raw peanuts on, or not raw, but you know, open I think peanuts I've had a on the outside. Very good. Love me a payday. But anyway, apparently Bennett, I haven't had a payday. <laughs> <laughs> We're all looking for that payday. You probably know. But some of the listeners may not know precisely what it is that we do here on this program. And uh, to them, I would say this is the program where we go down deep, 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 deep into the spooky basement of Glenn Beck's youth, searching for the canned, jarred corn of right-wing thought. Mm. That's what we do here on this is callback, the last episode. You have to, if you didn't listen to it, you have to go listen to mm, it. Yeah, you do. The spooky basement with corn in it. That's what we learned. That's true. And Bennett, before we get into everything this week, mm. I did want to say... Uh, just right off the bat, that we had an exciting development uh, as far as who supports the show. Oh, okay. Uh, Benedict, we got our first Soros. Amazing. Congratulations to us. <laughs> now, it's not George Soros on his own. He can't afford that no. to control this show, as we know. Have a control. Uh, Glenn Beck would tell us. But uh, Becky Scott Fairley, it seems, graciously decided to allow George Soros to, to go in. By the way, uh, if you want to both listen to the patron-only episodes, you have to get your own separate account. So we can't, <laughs> have, we can't have George Soros and you sharing RSS feeds. It's a whole Tell that thing. to Stephen and Sidney uh, <laughs> But now we do have Becky Scott Fairley and George Soros Supporting the show, I am so proud. And to the both of you, I will say that you are now part of our... This is New World Spooky World Order. <laughs> our Spooky New World Order. So, oh, amazing. for any of our patrons who want to change their name and add George Soros... We could be 100% else, Soros funded. If, if we, yes, that is the goal. I want, and I know some people, you want to keep your names, it's all right. But if anyone else decides to join the George Soros New World Spooky New World Order, uh, that's I'm going to have to pull that drop from that video and play it whenever <laughs> that happens from now on. So very excited. Oh, very excited amazing. to finally be Soros controlled. I love that. Uh, but anyways, Benedict, you want to start it off? You have a hot take for us this week. I do. And it, it is that, folks, Kevin is a lawyer. Isn't that amazing? Everybody, Everybody congratulate Kevin. Line. Yeah, I know. Of course I stole yours. Uh, you shouldn't let me go first. You know whenever you have big news, I'm going to be the one that's like, guys, Kevin did a thing. So everybody go to uh, go to twitter.com and congratulate him. To Twitter.com. Yeah, exactly. Congratulate. It's actually, actually twitter.blogspot.com. Yeah, oh, okay. 
congratulate Kevin uh, because he's the only one that looks at the Twitter account. I am not affiliated with the Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> you have you to ask. Yeah, I, I would like to distance account. myself from the Twitter account. <laughs> but so basically, the Twitter account is his account. So go to twitter.com and give him a friendly at mention or DM and tell him how proud of you are, him you are because I yeah. am so proud of Kevin. I know how hard he worked. Um, <laughs> we've just been uh, talking about how hard he worked uh, and yeah. years and years of study so absolutely i mean to be fair i worked harder than people who didn't take the bar exam that's so, true so i have that you have a baseline level of having taken the bar exam <laughs> as a as a how hard you worked but in 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 sincerity i'm not very good at sincerity kevin as you yeah, know i know uh i am very you for five years i'm well aware i am very proud of you and I think it's a huge achievement. You can tell by this, the shift in the tone of my voice yes. that I'm now being sincere. You've been going to the Glenn Beck School of Acting. <laughs> Listen, we both agreed that he can be engaging when he wants to yes, be. Yes, again. Yes, again. Much like who we're going to be talking about today. So, Kevin, what is your hot take? My hot take, Benedict. Um, allow me to bring the sincerity in. Since you, yeah. you obviously had such a difficult time in, in bringing that atmosphere. Mm. My hot take this week, Benedict, is I know how alexander felt when he wept <laughs> because there were no more worlds to conquer okay let's let's be real uh and bring the insincerity back kevin you're a lawyer in missouri get ahead of yourself <laughs> okay but to be fair i did that was my hot take i did write that down as my hot take because here's the thing uh that whole thing about alexander not having any more worlds to conquer um, Alexander was wrong. There were more Many. worlds to conquer. He just didn't know about them. Yep. Um, and that is where I am and how I feel where, um, I, I'm obviously not comparing myself to Alexander the Great or anything like that. I'm not that Seems uh, like you full did, of myself. <laughs> but no, it was, it's somewhat, I heard this from somewhere. Uh, someone brought it up and, as a joke and it, it struck me in my mind. Like, oh, that would be fun to talk about. But, um, uh, it does feel like I've reached something that obviously I've been working towards this for about eight and a half, nine years now, uh, between when I started in night school and community college to getting into UC Berkeley and then law school and then the bar exam. It's been a long way. And up to this point in my life, most of my achievements have been academic. You know, getting into UC Berkeley was a huge thing for my life. The law school acceptance and all this stuff. Um, and it is, it's at a point where I am at, I'm not, done i don't have uh, i'm not out of worlds to conquer but the worlds that i'm conquering will be changing mm. um and i also did want to make a little bit of fun about how stupid that thing about alexander just not knowing there were other worlds being so oh, that he was definitely also... knew that india existed as a concept <laughs> okay. and he he just was like that's well, too far okay but the quote is apocryphal anyway so it doesn't yeah really he also matter. drank himself uh, to death at age 33 <laughs> so maybe just give yourself a little more time alexander well i'm working on it i'll get there i might only get there by 35 we'll mm, see how okay. it goes Anyways, Ben, that is how I feel. Uh, mm. I'm excited to be moving forward and finally getting to what is the end goal of all this that I've been working towards. But Ben, why don't we move on a little bit? What's on your bookshelf this week? Well, Kevin, it's Glenn Beck. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I can't no even say it as a joke. That. Is it the book he suggested in his own <laughs> book? No, it is not. Yeah, can you imagine? No, I, it's actually a book that you bought for me that I haven't read, but it seems like something people should read. I, I read a bit of it. I haven't. I just haven't finished it. Um, which is Snow Crash. 
Oh, you finally started reading a little bit of Snow yeah, Crash. Yeah, a bit of a bit of Neil Stevenson. Oh. Um, the reason I think people should read it is that because the Silicon Valley guys are obsessed with the idea of the multiverse, <laughs> but like as if it's a good thing. And Neil Stephen <laughs> is pretty clearly satirizing the idea of the multiverse when he oh. writes the things that he writes. So I think everyone yeah. should read it just to be aware of like the end goal that these people have in mind mm-hmm. when they're like, oh yeah, we want to create the multiverse. Just, I think some light societal pushback to that idea yeah. might not be the worst thing. He's satirizing a little bit of that. He's also heavily satirizing the libertarian paradise, which is also something I enjoy very much. Mm. Yeah, mm. although he he's an interesting guy. He um he worked yeah. for I think he worked for Jeff Bezos when he did the Blue Origin stuff. It was either yeah, it was either Bezos or, or Elon Musk. Yeah, I he worked. For, one, I think it was, was I like, think it was Blue Origin. I think he worked for the the like space exploration. Yeah, side he was like Blue their Origin. Imagineer. Or yeah, something like that. Something. Right? Yeah, it was, a, it was a paid consultant for them. I think like head dreamer or something like that. Because yeah, something like but no, that. Ne- I love Neil Stevenson. I've read most of his books. There might be one or two I haven't read, but um, he's a very interesting, weird guy. He has his own sort of weird right-wingy tendencies, uh, but his writing I find just incredibly uh, thought-provoking. It's great science fiction. So, yeah, check that out. I For, for once, I agree with one of your recommendations. <laughs> well, yeah, it's because you bought me the book. Um, what about you? What's your, what's your bookshelf? For me this week, Benedict, I am going back to recommending anime. Okay, uh, I gave you like two weeks in a row why I recommended a book, and that means the rest of the year I just get to recommend different anime. Mm. I'm pretty sure that's how this works. Uh, this week I'm recommending the anime That Time I Got Reincarnated as a Slime. Um, okay. It's a delightful story about a middle-aged office worker who uh, is stabbed to death and reincarnates in another world as a slime, sort of like out of a number of video games we've all played. Mm. <laughs> and it is um, very much that thing I've told you about with anime before, where it's uh, earnest people being earnest. Mm. Except that this one, it, it feels like, uh, at the beginning, like it would be like a children's show. Until you realize just how much sex and violence is in it. Okay. I think it almost lures you in, and then hits you with, you know, the main character who is uh, uh, has to <laughs> kill 10,000 people to turn into a demon lord. Oh. And, yeah, and uh, constant boob jokes and things. Mm. It's strange, but it is really delightful. It's a really fun time. You know, find himself in a new world, and by some uh, uh, crazy coincidence, is one of the most powerful beings in that world and has to deal with all the challenges that come along with, all, with the help of all of his friends. Um, and it's a very fun time. So go ahead and check that out. Right. I probably won't, but okay. I know you will. Yeah. But, Benedict, with all that out of the way, remember, rate and review us on iTunes. And uh, for Benedict's sake, uh, once again, uh, I'm not going to be berating him uh, for Blessed. not, uh, you know, for what people have done to him in the past. Uh, but I will say, I, I the other day I was on Twitter and I mm. saw this story post. It was a Breitbart uh, news uh, article. So, you know. Accuracy is suspect, but it did say that one of our listeners was out uh, for the evening walking along the canal of the town that they lived in, um, and someone came by on one of those uh, boats that you see over in Italy, certain places, let's say Venice, one of those poles at the back pushing it along, and they just, oh, it would be a nice night to go on a ride on one of those little Venice canoe things that I'm blanking on the name of. Um, and they waved the guy down and asked if he would be willing to take them down the, the canal. And, and the guy looked at him and said, no, because you 
didn't leave a five-star review on iTunes for that podcast that you listened to. <laughs> I think Bendick's going to enjoy the way this is turning in the future. Uh, but beyond that, remember to follow us on all the social medias. And with all that out of the way, Benedict, this week, we have two things to do. One, a minor recap of our review of Glenn Beck's Arguing with Socialists. And then we will get into the introductory episode thing that I always do of William F. Buckley and his book, God and Man at Yale. So to begin with, Benedict, mm. I gave you a set of questions ahead of time several weeks ahead of time, as a matter of fact, for you to answer mm -hmm. about Glenn Speck's book. So let's start off. What was your favorite chapter okay. of Arguing with let, Socialists? I, I mean... Um, I know I told you best chapter, but yeah, let, well, come up with your own I, criteria. No, I, I think that's... I think, uh, I think the way you're framing it now is better than best yes. chapter. Yes. Because, I, yeah, I think the, there are... Because none were good. <laughs> no, none were good. It's like ranking dog shit versus horse shit. I yeah, think, I get it. I think my favorite chapter was the one where... Um, I forget which one it was, but um, it, it, the one where he I'm just went... buy you some yellow notepads. That's what I'm going to yeah, do. Yeah, that's a good idea. The one where he just went through and was like, hey, this is every communist country I can think oh, of off yes. the top of my yes, head yes 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 uh here is everything that went wrong with those countries and yeah <laughs> it was just like I'm pretty sure was, that and was it was chapter three or yeah four, i think it's chapter four i think it's chapter four i'm just trying to find it again um but yeah i, I think i think that was my favorite chapter yeah yeah chapter four which is uh beginning on page oh god it's such a long chapter no one's gonna read it you don't have to give a page number that's true, really that's true. it's socialist number. utopias and their bloody history of failure <laughs> is the uh, yes for which my alternate chapter title was glenn's little black book um yes I remember. I recall when he repeatedly gave different numbers about the number oh, of extremely. deaths from communism, and also was like Nazi Germany, communist country. <laughs> what? Um, he went full Dinesh D'Souza on us did, there. Yeah. Yes. Oh yes, yeah. He went. Ever ever wonder why the Nazi flag is red? Is one of the prominent <laughs> brain dumps of that chapter. Uh, unlike the uh, the famously redless American flag. Yes, absolutely. Uh, My favorite chapter, Benedict, uh, was chapter eight. Mm. Eco-socialism and climate change. Um, because, A, I love when I'm given a bunch of bullshit to dig into. Because that's, yeah, that's what I, I thrive on on this show, is the detailed look into what he's talking about. And that is also the chapter where we were introduced to our friend who thinks that climate change is caused by magnetism because aliens mm. told him so. <laughs> As yeah. one of Glenn's sources. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Or, or, or that was a guy who had published with one of Glenn's sources, which yeah, yeah. cast a lot of doubt on Which me, we, we may be cast unfair aspersions on, uh, on, on that man, but... You know what? Maybe he actually did get secret information from aliens about what Maybe. was causing climate change. It's possible. Maybe. It's possible. Not likely, I'll say. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I would say no. So, Ben, what was the worst chapter of the book for you? Um... I think the one I enjoyed least was the Swedish style socialism, which was uh, chapter five. We have the same one. We yeah. have the same one. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think, I think that's the one I enjoyed least just because, um, it's very, it's very overdone even amongst mm -hmm. the right wing talking points about socialism. And I also just like so much of what he said is wrong and yep. like generalization, but not wrong in a fun way. It's just factually mm -hmm. wrong. 
It's not like, yeah. haha, this guy thinks aliens cause climate change. It's just like the percentage <laughs> of taxation was wrong. Or, you yeah, know, just boring and stuff. And it was that... upsetting to me because that was the one where I just kept going, okay, Glenn, but but we want that. Yeah. That's what we want. And he's like, that's You say in all that. the other chapters, we want something else, but I'm telling you, and so many of us have told you, as you admit by the fact that you're writing this chapter, that that's what we want. And you say it's not a socialism. So that must mean we can have it. But what? We still can't have it? Yeah, because it's was, not socialism. That was what, and you yeah. want socialism. Yeah, it was just, it was a very frustrating chapter. It, yeah, it, it really pissed me off. Well, Benedict, what was the biggest surprise for you from arguing with socialists? I think for me, it was... I, I don't even know if I'd call it a surprise, but it's just a, a disappointment maybe of just how little substance there was to it. Um, and And just like how much of this stuff is just basically rote that we've wrote is in rote like he's yes think yeah. things you learn by by heart and you know i could have written this book is is it was my my disappointment i think the surprising <laughs> thing was how uh how often he referred to his own books in the brain dumps yes um, yes that was that was brave um <laughs> well yeah what you were talking I, I think about I before just... the thing where it's sort of like by rote right i think i've talked about in the past how Republicans think that fun facts are intelligence. They think that mm -hmm. knowing fun facts is what intelligence is. And I think especially looking at all the brain dumps, because that's what 90% of them were, were just fun facts. And a lot of them were wrong. Uh, yeah. Like, that's, that's Certainly a clear debatable. sign of that. Yeah. Postmodern fun facts. Of <laughs> <laughs> well, Benedict, for me, the biggest surprise, I'll say I have two, because I couldn't come up with one okay. that was the bigger That's surprise fine. for me. Uh, one was that he did not use incorrect pronouns or the wrong name for trans people uh, in the book. I we at one point we noted that when he brought up a trans person, I was like, I'm I'm incredibly surprised he's not using the wrong pronouns on purpose. And then I expected it to come throughout the entire book, yeah. but it well, never ben, happened. Ben Shapiro did. Yes, absolutely. So did Donald Trump Jr. Yeah. So did I'm pretty sure Dinesh. It, it, in 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 Ben Shapiro's book, he did it deliberately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many. I don't of them think do Dinesh did. To be fair, yeah, I think he did. It's the, who's an edgy boy? Who's an edgy boy? Certainly uh, not. I, not in the books. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. Well, and the other biggest surprise for me was, and I I've mentioned this before, that we didn't get hardly any George Soros in the book. Because like I've said in the past, George Soros defines Glenn Beck for me. And I think after what we've gone through over the last couple of weeks, going through that entire program he did, you can see why. When you disgrace yourself to that level and make it such a part of your identity, I have a hard time expecting anything else from you than that. And we got, I think maybe we got Soros name dropped once, maybe twice in this book, but really didn't even really talk about the guy at all. Didn't go into any of it. But I I was so surprised. I was incredibly surprised we didn't get any of that. Yeah, I think... No, I think you're right. I think it, Glenn Beck very much has defined himself, certainly in the 2010s, as it, it d defines himself in opposition to George Soros. And that's, you know, that this whole book was defined in opposition to socialism, right? It was There was very little practical proposal as an alternative it's just like the this is how you argue against these talking points the these 
supposed socialist talking points and proposals without actually offering anything of your own. It's which is basically one long no. That's like <laughs> essentially Glenn Beck's argument here. Yeah, pretty much. I can't I can't disagree with you on that. Well, Benedict, that is it for our review of Arguing with Socialists. We are done with the book. We are moving on. And that means it's finally time for us to dive into our next topic, which is the next book we'll be doing, God and Man at Yale by William F. Buckley. Mm. And to junior. begin with, right? J- junior, correct, correct, I should say. The initial question is not really who is William F. Buckley, but what is William F. Buckley? And based on the glowing descriptions by any number of conservative ideologues after his death or the incredibly numerous introductions to the book, there are five. There are five mm. separate introductions to the copy of the book that so, we have. So many. The book is so short. It's, like, it's, <laughs> it so, really it's, like it's a pamphlet, basically. Well, it's crazy. You it's and I talked real, about I didn't this. realize, because I was like, oh, 300 pages. That's a re- oh, 200 yeah. pages. That's a reasonable length for a book. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you and I talked about this when we got the copies. We were surprised. So that first 30-ish pages or so is all introductions. And then the last, I don't know, I think it was 60 or something we said, is all uh, appendixes. It's all appendixes of the first, nonsense. The first 70, 70 pages is in- introductions. And then there's yeah. 100, 180 pages of Buckley's content. And then there's another 50 pages of, of appendices. And I will say I am very happy that we have a book that has appendices in it. Uh, because, you know, this was bit written in 1951. You couldn't slap in a bibliography, bibliography with hyperlinks and stuff. Uh, so a bigli- into bibliography. It. Bibliography. Uh, so it is very nice to have something. I, I'm excited to look into that stuff. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But, you know, to all those people, he's the man who made conservatism respectable. He threw off that racist, anti-Semitic, and xenophobic past and managed to fuse together the totally non-racist, non-anti-Semitic, non-xenophobic, libertarians, paleoconservatives, and religious fundamentalists, and other right-wing kooks who, I should remind you, are so totally not racist. That's he's he's he the is. godfather godfather of the modern conservative movement Popu- in, in popular imagination, I would say. To... Yes. Well, I would say in actual imagination, which is reality, not imagination. He actually is, and we'll be getting into it, you know, throughout the weeks that we're doing this, how he has influenced other things. And uh, we've talked about in the past the way that the National Review pushed aside the John Birch Society, or supposedly did. I would argue that that actually, what he did led to the John Birch Society having even more influence. And even though he publicly denounced them, he had numerous high-up individuals from the John Birch Society who were writing for the National Review and were actively involved in running it. So it was a smokescreen, I think. He recognized that they looked like a bunch of nuts and kooks, and the National Review had a reputation as not being that. And so in order Mm. to protect that, he denounced the John Birch Society. Yes. He denounced the John Birch Society while basically saying the same things in a different tone than the Birchers were going about doing it. Because Buckley spent a lot of his time ranting crazy shit about communism, just like all these people did. So Mm -hmm. let's get into a little bit of who he was. William Frank Buckley Jr., and I will say the Frank as many times as possible, 
uh, or I should say, as many times as National Review writers have written the Hussein in President Obama's name, <laughs> was born on November 24th, 1925 in New York City. He was the sixth... I, I have a question, if, and I don't know yeah. if you're going to come on to this later on. Okay, he was born in New York City. He's yes. a coastal elite. Why did yes. he talk like a southern planter? I, I still cannot answer that question to you. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. And, and I would say, listening to him talk, it is a mix of several accents. And mm -hmm. a little bit of his early life um, may have influenced how he ended up talking in the long run. But I think some of it was put on. I, I'm not sure. I'm 100% oh, not sure. I, I presume it's affected, at least in some yeah. way. A little well. See, so he was the sixth of ten children of William F. Buckley Sr., a Texas oil developer. So that might have some influence on where that came from. Isn't it a and bit weird for the sixth child to be the junior? How did that happen? I don't know. I you know I, I didn't think about that when I was looking at all this. I don't know. <laughs> maybe they were all girls before him. Maybe. I don't remember about his brothers. I know he has brothers, and I'm going to talk about it. But I don't remember if they were older or younger. So maybe he was just the first boy. I'm not sure. Um, but so his father was a Texas oil developer, and his mother, whose name was Aloise Josephine Antonia Steiner. So many of these people use all of their various names because they think it makes them sound fancy, and I hate that so much. Um, most of the members of his family seem to have ended up religious fundamentalists of some sort. That's not very surprising, given that he was raised by a mother who had tutors and religious um, teachers brought into the home to drill that into them. They were incredibly catholic in their house one of his sisters famously has tempted to slap a feminist named ty grace atkinson for blaspheming that was a famous event in her life great stuff uh his brother james l buckley was a senator from new york and is the buckley that jesse helms the famous racist wanted to make president with his draft buckley campaign He's also the Buckley of mm. the Buckley v. Vallejo Supreme Court decision, which is a famous campaign finance oh. law, which basically was the beginning of the slide that led us to Citizens United. So that that's another great thing to add to his family background that got us to where we are today. Uh, Buckley played the harpsichord, and as a boy, I know, harpsichord, not a particularly popular instrument Love these days, I don't think. <laughs> Uh, as a boy, he moved to Mexico with his family, uh, where his father was very close uh, with the uh, military dictatorship that was in Mexico at the time. Not incredibly surprising, seeing where we'll see him go with his ideology in the future. Um, he attended first grade in Paris, and then later the family moved to London, where he attended a Jesuit prep school. So we have oh, all these no. different countries. Are we responsible for this motherfucker again? No, 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 no. He came back to the United States relatively quickly. You don't have to take the blame on this one. But I will say his shittiness did begin early in life. When in 1943, he was a member of the American Boys Club for the Defense of Errol Flynn during Flynn's 1943 statutory rape trial. So, cool. Yeah, that's should be an early sign. 
1945, mm. after the war, he went to Yale University, from which he graduated in 1950. I, w I should say uh, he was uh, in the service during 1945, where when he was drafted, he requested placement in the infantry because, as he wrote to his father, he thought it would be more likely he'd be able to get a desk job in the infantry than anywhere else, which, yes, he did end up getting a desk job and stayed in the United States for the duration of the war. Not saying there's... He served. Not going to discount that, but he was very clearly trying to take the easy route. Uh, while he was at Yale, which he graduated from in 1950, he was the head of the Yale Daily News and an FBI informant. Yes, yeah. he was an FBI informant. <laughs> I said his shittiness began Amazing. young, right? Um, I was Amazing. unable to figure Love out that. Exactly. Love that for Mr. Buckley. I was unable to figure out what exactly he was doing as an FBI informant, um, because a lot of this uh, is, uh, uh, you know, citations to different things, a lot of stuff that was written way back in the day. I found one article that said it had something to do with uh, intimidating liberal professors, which I had to imagine maybe he was writing articles at Yale. Um, I'm going to dig more into that in the future and see what's there on it, but that, that was very interesting to me. Also, in 1950, he married Patricia Alden Austin Taylor. Again, all those names. And in 1952, they had one son named Christopher Buckley, who is today a liberal political satirist best known for writing Thank You for Smoking, which was later turned into a movie. Mm. Yeah. That's fun. Uh, he wrote God... Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I, it was a decent movie. I didn't mind it. Um, he wrote God and Man at Yale in 1951 founded the National Review in 1955. That's three years before the John Birch Society was created, I should point out. Uh, Firing Line, his television show, began in 1966. And in 1965, he had his famous debate with James Baldwin at Cambridge, which, of course, Buckley lost, <laughs> just weeks after Martin Luther mm. King's Selma march, where Buckley was arguing that uh, really there wasn't much oppression of African Americans in the United States and the, the American dream wasn't built on said oppression. It was not a good look then. It is still not a good look now. Uh, he had a famous feud with Gore Vidal that lasted over a number of years. I think the biggest <laughs> moment from all of that was in 1968 when Benedict... So this this Gore Vidal feud uh, it culminated in the. By the way, I love Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal is just excellent. Gore Vidal is not a person without his own problems, but the, Gore of Vidal, course. of course, much, of course, yes, uh, probably a much better person than William F. Buckley was. Um, so in 1968, they were both hired to do the. Uh, 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 conventions for the 1968 election to do coverage for them uh, and basically it was them arguing with each other and devolved into this exchange i'm about to play uh the audio is not great it's obviously it's from a 50 uh, ish 60 year old broadcast but uh here you go gore vidal is the one talking at the beginning you must realize what some of the political issues are here that many People in the United States uh, happen to believe that the United States policy is wrong in Vietnam and the Viet Cong are correct in wanting to organize their country in their own way politically. This happens to be pretty much the opinion of Western Europe and many other parts of the world. If it is a novelty in Chicago, that is too bad. But I assume that the point of the American democracy and some is you can express any point of view you want. 
Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people were pro-Nazi, and the answer is that they were, they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro- or crypto-Nazi I can think of is yourself. <laughs> Failing that, that's, I would that's, only that's say that we negative. can't have now listen, you the right of assembly Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling I'll names. I'll you goddamn face, and you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's so <laughs> William F. Buckley interrupting Gore Vidal telling him he's uh, gonna sock him in the goddamn face well, he, it was a little muffled there you probably couldn't hear he also called Gore Vidal a queer oh, uh, Gore Vidal was a well-known open bisexual man at that time in the 1960s um, so of course that probably was why Buckley decided to say that about him yeah um that never got better between them. I don't think they ever made up. Uh, no, nor should they. They're f- no. fundamental. I mean, Govidal had friendships with people across the political spectrum. Yes. Uh, and told them he hated them all the time, which mm-hmm. is uh, fun, fun Govidal. Yes, very much. Um, so that was from their coverage of the 1968 convention. But I've also mentioned already, of course, the show Firing Line, mm. which he ran from 1966 to, I believe, 1990 was when the show ended and, and it went off the air. Um, was that from Firing Line? No, no, that was not from Firing Line. That okay. was just from their coverage at the convention. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, yes. He had a number of notable people on Firing Line, from Noam Chomsky to, uh, I don't think he had Baldwin on. I don't think he ever had James Baldwin uh, on Firing Line. No, I don't think so. Um, he had a number of pro-segregationist individuals. He had a, an incredible number of very interesting people. Hitch, and I will Hitchens say when he was a proper lefty. Hitchens was on it, yes. When he was a proper I, lefty, yeah. I will probably not say much that is ever very good about William F. Buckley because of what a horrible human being he was. But I will say, he is incredibly interesting to watch on Firing Line. The show was very good. Mm -hmm. And I have watched a ton of it just since I've been preparing for this episode. Um, And it is, if you've seen him, what you've probably seen of him is him with his right hand against his chin and his pointer finger up towards his ear yeah. and a clipboard in the other hand. That is the iconic William F. Buckley uh, way of being, I guess. Because <laughs> yeah, that's the way le- he leaning, always leaning is. Leaning on his right hand, looking at yes. the notes, interviewing yes. his guests. Yeah, no, very much so. And, and I, we were talking before the show, I think um, Firing Line is... <sighs> it's a William F. Buckley show, obviously, but I mean, yeah. the, the one thing you can't accuse Firing Line of is being scared to own its position mm-hmm. or, or Buckley was never he, he would own his position to a certain extent and and would invite people on that he disagreed with and not shout over them so he'd have Chomsky on and let him talk he would have you know lefty Hitchens from the 80s on and let him talk mm-hmm. who are two very erudite people um at, at, you know Putting putting forward a leftist cause to an extremely right-wing host and being allowed and and permitted to do so and argued with kind of on their terms, which is more than you can say for, I think, pretty much any non-podcast now. There's no, there's no, there's no TV show that does that. He was the Joe Rogan of 1968. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine no. William F. <laughs> William F. Buckley going? And now we're gonna we're gonna cut this. Oh my Today, god! Can you imagine we're him? Ad- Alex Jones on firing line. Have you heard about? He, you know what though? 
He probably have you heard about microdosing? Oh, oh, I've lost it. Imagining <laughs> William F. Buckley being like, you know, microdosing is great, and I have this supplement, but it really makes you shit yeah, yourself. It goes got- right <laughs> through you. We got this male vitality supplement I got to talk to you about. You're on firing line. Just imagine switching uh, the people out. I've got yeah. to get his so, voice down so that I can do a bit of him doing. It's so hard to do. Him advertising. It's so hard to do. Yeah. It, it's, it's, from, it's like the back of the. I, yeah, I'm going to practice it's this. A, I'll get it. It's, it's a bit breathy. Well, and here's the thing is that the uh, William F. Buckley, despite being the conservative hero, is all of those things that they constantly complain about. He is the effete Northeastern uh, elitist who went to an Ivy League college and, you know, this, that, and all those things. It plays the harpsichord. He is all of those things that they complain about so much. He is the opposite of the real man or real American that they think is the ideal for conservatism. Yet, he still is the leader of their pack. And that we were talking about that accent a little bit. I think it's, it's like a mix. It's a mix of that Northeastern sort of Connecticut thing. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of British thrown in there. Um, yeah, it's, hard it's a to little, say. Um, what's it called? The Mid-Atlantic accent? Is it Mid-Atlantic? Yeah, something no, like that. what's it called? The one that's like um, transatlantic. No. If you ever watched MASH, the TV show back in the day, they had a doctor who was, I don't remember the do- I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, but he was from Massachusetts and sort of had a little bit of that same thing going on. Or maybe he was from Connecticut. I don't remember. But the, what's the, the one they invented for the first talkies, which is like, uh, I'll never be able to do, you know, that, that like. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I forget. Anyway, so we're not going to be... Pl- That's the only clip. The one I played a little bit ago is the only clip we're going to be playing on today's show. I know some of you might be disappointed because you like when we play the clips. But the reason is there is so much content with Firing Line. We're going to be going into it in interstitials. I think probably for the foreseeable future. We'll do it here and there in between some other stuff. Uh, because there's just is so much and they're hour-long episodes of these incredible uh not incredible these very entertaining interviews with people um and i think it's as important to see when he disagrees with people as when he agrees with them there was one i was watching the other day with a segregationist where he was agreeing with the guy on some points and i'll talk about that in a little bit because it bothered me very much so i mentioned before his catholicism and Buckley's fundamentalist Catholicism is a major influence on his life and I think most of his political positions, as well as the people he surrounded himself with. If you look at the roster of all the people who worked at or wrote for National Review over the years, it is heavily Catholic and heavily far-right Catholic uh, in the, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, far out pacing what is, you know, normal for the population. There is a large number of them there, especially given that the first editor uh, was Brent Bozell, father of Brent Bozell Jr., who is currently um, a right-wing fundamentalist Catholic who, you know, argues against the current Catholic Church position on all these things and is a vile moron. But the book we're reading, God and Man at Yale, was criticized at the time it was put out by many for its Catholic bias by some of the commentators who were going, wait a minute, you're complaining about religion not being the way you wanted it at Yale, which was a Protestant school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they did point out correctly that, yeah, he's, he's warping things a little bit in wanting things to be the way he would like them to be. Fine. Uh, but he also... In That's, 19- well, I mean, it, it, it's worth dwelling on that for a second because, I mean, this yeah. is there was huge 
anti People Catholic used to care about that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, pe- pe- remember, this is before the US had had its first Catholic president mm-hmm. and yeah. in JFK. And when JFK was elected, people said that he shouldn't be president because he would always be beholden to the Pope. So he would yeah. never be that he could never be the lead, the true independent leader of America because he would have. You to know what, Benedict? We're on our his... second Catholic president now. Booyah. That's... Sure. <laughs> well, as look, if you were raised Catholic, your family will constantly tell you that people didn't used to like Catholics in this country. But you know what? If you grew up in the 90s, that really doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. So just telling you what my situation was. But. In 1997, Buckley wrote a book called Nearer My God, in which he wrote that the Supreme Court was at war with religion in public schools mm. and claimed that they were replacing the Christian God with another one. Can you take a guess, Benedict? Oh, uh, multiculturalism. Oh. <laughs> Not even Allah. How? No matter how much things change, they always stay the same. Well, that's not even that uh, long ago. You said 97. No, 1997. Yeah. No, it's just, you know, he was on the, the vanguard of I that. was alive then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, Buckley, in his adult life, attended the traditional Latin mass mm-hmm. and disapproved of the post-Vatican II church. Mm. I don't know how much you know about Catholic history, but there are weirdos who complain that we now do ma- we now do mass in English. There are still weirdos who complain about that. That's your Vatican II people. To be fair, if you want mass in English, just be a Protestant. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that that's, is correct. That's kind of what the whole thing On was some about. Accounts, like, that's kind of look, that's kind of what the whole deal was. <laughs> I, I can't pretend to be someone who cares very much about religion or the distinctions, but I will recognize there are more distinctions than just English versus Latin mass between Protestants. Ah, and whatever. Some. Yeah, he was also apparently a huge fan of a nun named Maria Valtorta, okay. who wrote a book called "The Poem of the Man God." which claimed to be divine revelations of the life of Jesus that weren't revealed in the Gospels. Oh, fine. I.e., a crazy nun. But then, Benedict, National Review. Mm. Buckley's premier creation. The thing he will always be remembered for because it will survive him and continue to spew vile headlines and shitty hot takes for the rest of time. Quick question before you do this. Mm -hmm. Did, um, Did Firing Line survive Buckley? Uh, it was so when he left, and I, I, I didn't write down the end date, but I, I seem to remember it being 1990, maybe it was a little after that. Um, it did stop, but then in 2018, a new version of Firing Line was created mm. uh, with a woman, I think her last name is Hoover. I can't remember her first name off the top of my head. Um, and I, I looked into it, and basically, it's the same premise. Uh, she's a conservative. She has a bunch of people on. I think some of the people she has on shouldn't be given the time of day or, you know, like she had Jordan Peterson on. Um, She had uh, Paul Ryan. She had Ian Hirsi Ali. You know, a bunch of people, I think, for the most part, we should just ignore. Um, But it's been acclaimed. People say it's fine. I haven't seen it. Okay. Who knows? Um, But yeah, so it's back. Apparently Fire Line is back. But National Review, I said, was founded in 1955. Uh, it was originally supposed to be National Weekly, but another magazine already had the name, so they went with National Review. Um, early in its history, the magazine provo- promoted Barry Goldwater, hmm. both in the 1960 and 1964 elections as part of the Draft Goldwater movement. Classic. And the goal of the magazine was really to centralize conservatism. The mission statement that Buckley put out 
It says, quote, The launching of a conservative weekly journal of opinion in a country widely assumed to be a bastion of conservatism at first glance looks like a work of supererogation. I'm pronouncing that word like it looks. How do you He's spell using it? Super arrogation. Okay. He's using a $5 word when a two-cent one would do. Yep. Rather, th- rather like publishing a royalist weekly within the halls of Buckingham Palace. It is not that, of course. If National Review is superfluous, it is so for very different reasons. It stands athwart history yelling stop at a time when no other is inclined to do so or to have much patience with those who so urge it. So, I think... All the, all the authors we've read, we've had a number of them who have de- tried to define what conservatism is. And I think Buckley gave us the best definition right there. Yelling stop. Trying to stop progress. I think is the yeah. best definition of conservatism that you can come up with. And he admits it, basically. Later in the National Review, I will just say, you know, going back to what people think of this now, uh, one one writer, Rich Lowry, wrote that uh, Mr. Buckley's first great achievement was to purge the American right of its kooks. He marginalized <laughs> the anti-Semites, the John Birchers, the nativists and their sort. And that was sort of the look, right? Like I said, National Review appeared to be presentable and respectable, while at the same time, he said the John Birchers are bad, he was surrounded by John Birchers at the National Review. It's just, it's a facade. It's false. In 1957, just going back to what is National Review about? What sort of ideas did they espouse? What did Buckley himself espouse? Well, he wrote an editorial entitled, Why the South Must Prevail. Mm. And Benedict, it's as bad as you think it is. Yeah. To begin with, quote. Do you have it? I, I have it. I have wow. it in front of me. It's pulled up. I'm going to read you a good chunk of it. Yeah, the National uh, Review doesn't have the archive digitized no, for some reason. No, they don't tend to keep a lot of those available. <laughs> but luckily, there's a lot of people out there who go and find them and put them on the internet. Uh, but qu- there, it starts off talking about a vote that was had in the Senate, which was about uh, the right to a jury in, in uh, criminal contempt actions. Uh, and he's complaining about that. And of course, this is because it's 1950s. It's connected to the civil rights movement. And he says, quote, In that sense, the vote was a conservative victory, for the effect of it is, and let us speak about it bluntly, to permit a jury to modify or waive the law in such circumstances as, in the judgment of the jury, require so grave an interposition between the law and its violator. What kind of circumstances do we speak about? Again, let us speak frankly. And that phrase, Benedict, Mm -hmm. let us speak frankly, we're among friends here. Let's be racist. That should should always be a signal. That is a red flag. That racism is about to come. He continues, quote, The South does not want to deprive the Negro of a vote for the sake of depriving him of the vote. Political scientists assert that minorities do not vote as a unit. Women do not vote as a block, they contend. Nor do Jews or Catholics or laborers or nudists. Nor do Negroes. Nor will the enfranchised Negroes of the South. If that is true, the South will not hinder the Negro from voting. Why should it? If the Negro vote, like the women's, merely swells the volume, but does not affect the ratio of the vote in some parts of the South, the white community merely intends to prevail. That is all. It means to prevail on any issue on which there is corporate disagreement between Negro and white. The white community will take whatever measures are necessary to make certain that it has its way. What are such issues? Is school integration one? The NAACP and others insist that the Negroes as a unit want integrated schools. Others disagree. 
contending that most Negroes approve the social separation of the races. What if the NAACP is correct and the matter comes to a vote in a community in which Negroes predominate? The Negroes would, and it's hurting me to keep saying Negroes. Yeah, really that's is. not. <laughs> Continuing, quote, the Negroes would, according to democratic processes, win the election. But is that the kind of situation the white community will not permit? Or sorry, but that is the kind of situation the white community will not permit. The white community will not count the marginal Negro vote. The man who didn't count it will be hauled up before a jury. He will plead not guilty, and the jury upon deliberation will find him not guilty. A federal judge in a similar situation might find the defendant guilty, a judgment which would affirm the law and conform with the relevant political abstractions, but whose consequences might be violent and anarchistic. So what he's said there, Benedict, is this vote will allow the community to disenfranchise blacks, and that's a good thing mm. because federal judges who were upholding the law of the land would, in fact, uh, not disenfranchise black people he continues a little further quote national review believes that the south's premises are correct if the majority wills what is socially atavistic then to thwart the majority may be though undemocratic enlightened yeah this is, is this is republicanism it is he continues quote it is more important for any community anywhere in the world to affirm and live by civilized standards than to bow to the demands of of the numerical majority. Mm-hmm. We're a republic, not a democracy, etc. And I only picked out a few of the gross things from that article written by William F. Buckley. It's bad. He's a fucking racist. He yeah. just is a fucking racist. But Benedict, you know me. I'm not content to settle with just one example of William F. Buckley and his racism, or let's say the National Review and the racism it espoused throughout all the generations and very much continues to this day, even though they've learned to use different language and hide it better. Mm. In 1963, the National Review wrote an article or uh, put out an article. I don't know. I don't remember. I, I didn't write down who it was written by on the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a famous event. You might have heard of it before. In that article were the words, quote, The fiend who set off the bomb does not have the sympathy of the white population in the South. In fact, he set back the cause of the white people there so dramatically as to raise the question whether, in fact, the explosion was the act of a provocateur, of a communist, or of a crazed Negro. Some circumstantial evidence lends a hint of plausibility to that notion, especially the 10-minute fuse. Surely a white man walking away from the church basement 10 minutes earlier would have been noticed. And let it be said that the convulsions that go on and are bound to continue have resulted from revolutionary assaults on the status quo and a contempt for the law which are traceable to the Supreme Court's manifest contempt for the settled traditions of constitutional practice. That is the National Review. And Benedict, you're saying, no, there's, there's absolutely no way that they would continue that sort of thing into the modern day. Mm. I mean, there's, there's no way that they would go around victim-blaming and worrying more about the implications for them of violence against African Americans and other people than they, you know, the, the actual violence against them. There, there's no way that sort of thing could happen except when you realize that the national review published an article after dylan roof massacred african-americans in a church in which the author lamented that the worst part of this was that the democrats were likely to use it against republicans the worst part of the massacre 
that Dylan Roof perpetrated was the political consequences that might come from it for Republicans. Right. There is no end to the depths of their shittiness, and there never will be. But Benedict, you say, didn't William F. Buckley supposedly turn around on civil rights and turned into such a great guy? No. I mean, everyone talks about how in 1965, when he, was, he ran a failed campaign for New York mayor, that he was suddenly so uh, progressive on civil rights. And, and of course, throughout the later years, the 80s, 90s, even the early 2000s, he was, he was much better on civil rights. And to that, I would say, if he supposedly turned around in 1965, then why in 1968, in an interview on his show Firing Line, which I watched yesterday, when he interviewed a segregationist judge named Leander Perez, and Perez argued against the Voting Rights Act, would Buckley agree with him, say he would have voted against it, and called it communistic? Is it perhaps because all of his turnaround was a facade? But you, or perhaps you maybe know, he just did it when it was easy? Maybe he politicians was a coward? are cowards, yeah. 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 And Benedict, that's not the end of the National Review's problem with fascists, bigots, and outright white supremacists. No, no. As a matter of fact, that's pretty much all the National Review is throughout its entire history. And Benedict, I'll tell you, I didn't look at every writer who's ever written for the National Review. If I did that, and I was about to do what I'm about to do on this program, mm. this show would never end and you'd be very mad at me for how long we were sitting here recording. Mm. Okay. Because... I took a small selection of writers from the National Review. I took, in fact, the Notable Writers list, which is available on their Wikipedia page, and just started clicking through some of that, looking through some of those people. These are the notable people who have written for the National Review. And, Benedict, would you imagine it is a cesspool of white supremacy? They are, in fact, lousy with white supremacists in the sense of, you know, lice. Lousy. lousy, Where that that word comes from. Yes, you know where the word comes from? Over at the National Review. James Kilpatrick, former writer for the National Review, wrote a 1962 book called The Southern Case for Segregation, which contained the quote, quote, The Negro race as a race plainly is not equal to the white race as a race, nor for that matter, in the wild, wider world beyond, by the accepted judgment of 10,000 years. Has the Negro race as a race ever been the cultural or intellectual equal of the white race as a race, but remember, I don't think, ben, we, I don't think we need any this more. This was examples. the respectable publication, yeah. And the National Review kicked out all of the white supremacists, the neo Nazis, the anti Semites. Of course, later in that book, he wrote, A really massive, significant change in race relations will not come until the Negro people develop leaders who will ask themselves the familiar question, why are we treated as second-class citizens? And return a candid answer to it, because all too often that is what we are. Okay. I think that's enough examples. He, I think we get it. Bennett, I think we can move on. We're not going to be done with examples, but Bennett, you know what the real irony is? James Kilpatrick covered segregation for the National Review. That was his beat with the National Review. Great. He was very close to William F. Buckley. In fact, in 1958, he inclu- he uh, introduced William F. Buckley to William Sivens, the leader of the National Organizations for Citizens Councils, a.k.a. as they're really called, White citizens' councils, you know, the segregationist institutions that fought against blacks moving into white and white neighborhoods and usually had ties to Klan associations. That was, that was who we introduced him. And of course, uh, William Simmons was so kind as to send William F. Buckley his organization's mailing list, which I'm sure he used in sending out subscriptions. Mm. Yeah, 
L. Brent Bozell Jr., I've already mentioned. Uh, he was the brother-in-law of Buckley. He actually married uh, Buckley's sister. Uh, Buckley and him wrote a book together called McCarthy and His Enemies in 1954, which, of course, praises Joseph McCarthy course, and that? his McCarthyism. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, he was the first editor, I believe the first, he wasn't the editor-in-chief because Buckley was the editor-in-chief, but he was like a high-up editor. There was somebody below Buckley who was just like the editor. That was their job. Um, of course, later in his life, he became an open Catholic fascist and moved to Spain in 1965, where he published the magazine Triumph, an openly pro-Francoist mm. Catholic publication. He was also, this is a fun fact, the ghostwriter of Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative. Oh, that's fun. A fascist, well, either way, even if it was Goldwater, a fascist would have written Conscious of a Conservative, mm -hmm. but it's always fun to have that. But Benedict, you might say, what about Revilo P. Oliver, who we've talked about in the past? He's a very fun guy. We talked about his association with the John Birch Society, didn't we? Well, he wrote for National Review. He was one of the early individuals oh, yeah. heavily involved with of the National Review. Uh, but of course, he was eventually forced to resign uh, after when he went to join the National Alliance, the neo-Nazi organization founded by Willis Carto, which was later made more famous for its later leader, William Luther Pierce, who wrote the Turner Diaries, a.k.a. the book that inspired Timothy McVeigh. That was a fun one. But Benedict, you might also be saying, there's no, there's no way this continues to modern day. Surely they, they took care of their fascist and white supremacist problem somewhere along the way. That must have happened. It's not like... John Derbyshire was fired from National Review in 2012 for an article he wrote in a publication called Talkies Magazine. We'll talk about that again later in a little bit. Called The Talk, Non-Black Version. Benedict, oh, no. when I say the title of that, only bad things come to mind, correct? Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, that article described advice he gave to his son, including, quote, Don't be a good Samaritan to blacks in distress. The additional advice, don't attend uh, events likely to draw a lot of blacks. And contained the quote, in that pool of 40 million, there are nonetheless many intelligent and well-socialized blacks. I'll use IWSB as an ad hoc abbreviation. You should consciously seek opportunities to make friend with IWSBs. In addition to the ordinary pleasures of friendship, you will gain an amulet against potentially career-destroying accusations of prejudice. He continued, Unfortunately, the demand is greater than the supply, so IWSBs are something of a luxury good like antique furniture or corporate jets. Mm. 2012, longtime writer for the National Review, had to be let go because he said what he said behind closed doors out loud. Yeah. Not there was also Benedict Wick Allison, president of the non-public nonprofit that publishes the American Conservative, mm. the magazine founded by noticed, noted fascist bigot Pat Buchanan. Mm. Benedict, there was also Pat Buchanan, yep. neo-Nazi who wrote a 1990 New York Post article engaging in literal Holocaust denial, arguing that it was impossible that 850,000 were killed at Treblinka, and it was actually just a transit camp where deportees passed mm. before heading east. And whose 2002 book, The Death of the West, by the way, that name is a play on the, the title of the book, Decline of the West, written by Oswald Spangler, who I know that name sounds very German, and he was very German. It was the early 20s when he was writing that. He was totally not a Nazi. 
because he preferred Mussolini's fascism and mm. absolutely loved Lovely. Cecil Rhodes. So that's, you know, nothing wrong there. But the thesis of that book, uh, Buchanan's book, obviously, is that white people are not reproducing fast enough, so they're being oh, white replacement. By all the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the white, the white genocide, white replacement yep, theory, yep, exactly. Yep, yep. Um, and of course, in that book, he made sure to cite uh, radio broadcasts by William Luther Pierce, author of the Turner Diaries, and the white supremacist magazine American Renaissance, which was founded by white supremacist Jared Taylor. Cool, Benedict. Among Writers for National Review. There's also Jared Taylor, I founder like, of the I, White honestly, Supremacist magazine, I, I like American Renaissance. We're, we're spending too long <laughs> on contributors and not enough time on Buckley. So let's get back to Buckley. Well, Benedict, I've got a few more. No, 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 no. Look, this is I'm telling down. you, this is too much. We're getting through it. I'm well, telling you, this is too just much. Just wait, because Benedict, there's also Peter Brimelow, found former editor of National Review. And founder of the white supremacist website, V-Dare. Oh, wow. That's bad. That yeah. one's bad. Of course, Brimelow. <laughs> yeah, even you know V-Dare just by <laughs> yeah. hearing the name. Even that's you know, because V-Dare, of course, refers to Virginia Dare, who is beloved by white supremacists as a symbol of white heritage in the United States because she is supposedly the first white child born in the United States. Of course, I should mention that Brimelow claims that V-Dare is not a white supremacist website. Mm. They just happen to constantly and almost exclusively publish writings by white supremacists. So I'll give you the, the, the you know, he says it's not. All evidence to the contrary. There's also been a Steve Saylor, columnist and national at National Review from 1994 to 1998, and current writer for V Dare, who frequently writes about basically everyone them being dumber than whites because of genetics. He wrote a great article about Hurricane Katrina, and how blacks need more supervision than whites. That even National Review writer John Podert's called shockingly disgusting and racist. Mm. Apparently forgetting that just a few years earlier, Sailor was writing at National Review with him. Yeah. Then Benedict, there is Taki Theodorakopoulos. Taki Theodorakopoulos. One of the people who founded the American Conservative, along with Pat Buchanan, who is openly supportive of the Greek fascist neo-Nazi criminal gang, the Golden Dawn. In 1977, he wrote an article in The Spectator, that's a white supremacist magazine, which claimed blacks had lower IQ. <laughs> you get my joke there? Because Boris Johnson was the editor mm. of The Spectator. You get it? Uh, which UK claimed that blacks had lower yeah. Yes, the UK Spectator, which claimed that blacks had lower IQs. By the way, fun fact, Boris Johnson had to apologize for that very article when he was the editor of Spectator in 1999. That was fun. Uh, Talky, that is where we get that uh, Talkies uh, talk thing where John Derbyshire wrote his incredibly racist article. That is Talky Theodorakopoulos' website. And finally, Benedict, the last one. The last one. Patrick Hawley who has written uh, a number of pieces that have been published in Natural, National Review, as well as National File, a website connected to Alex Jones, The Daily Caller, The Washington Free Beacon, Breitbart, and founded his own website called Big League Politics, because, of course, That's the entire right-wing conservative media sphere is an incestuous pile of nonsense morons. Benedict, three days ago, and uh, this is not his only instance of racism, but three days ago, Patrick Howley tweeted a picture of Ronna Romney at CPAC with a group of mostly non-white children with the caption, quote, 
Ronna Romney's photo with her CPAC, Rising Stars, makes clear that the GOP is done with white men and also done with winning elections. Okay. Stop virtue signaling and grasp reality. Oh, Elite scumbags are genociding us. Okay. Benedict, the National Review did not push aside the racists, the anti-Semites, the white supremacists, the vile fascists. It embraced them throughout its entire history. Like I told you, I could have gone on with that list virtually forever of white supremacists, fascists, and all sorts of bigots. I mean, homophobia is just a given at the National Review that have worked there and continue to work there today because they are scumbags. But that thin veneer of respectability they think protects them from any criticism. It does not. They are vile morons. So, Benedict, I, I know you're mad at me for doing that to you. Yeah, I know it was you're too very long. mad at me for doing that. It's got nothing to do with but, Buckley. It's too long. Well, I disagree. I, I very much disagree with you because Buckley cannot be judged based solely on his own words. In his context, as the leader of the conservative movement, he has to be judged also based on the people he surrounded himself with. Yeah, I'm with. just saying we didn't need to go into all the modern stuff. That's what I'm saying. Well, look, we're going to be doing this book for a couple of months. There's going to be a lot more of this, me pointing out white supremacists who worked at National Review over that time. But I think I do think it's important. I very much think it's important because National Review is his creation. Everything that it was, is, and ever will be stems back to him. And I think it's very important to look at that sort of thing. But also, Benedict, I, for, for your benefit, I will get back to William F. Buckley. So, mm -hmm. Benedict, you might ask yourself, what were some of William F. Buckley's political positions? We know racism is one of them. We've seen that already. Among the others, of course, McCarthyism, McCarthyism was actually good. Does not bear up in the light of history, I no. have to say. No, none of them bear up in the light of history. No, no. Uh, segregation was good. We've read him saying that basically um everything is communism he sends he tends to use communism yep. as an excuse especially when he's arguing for segregation because you know we have to fight the communists when he was arguing in favor of the vietnam war which he was in favor of it oh, was yeah. because we have to defeat the communists what else are we gonna do when he supported augusto pinochet and franco mm. um it was because they were against the communists uh, ignore the fact that it's very possible he might have actually been part of a CIA operation to erase the bad things that Pinochet was doing, uh, the massacres and all the other shit. Um, I haven't looked into that deep enough to say whether it's true or not, but I found some very compelling evidence that he actually was working for the CIA. I can't get beyond speculation because there's not a whole lot of solidness there, but some people think so. Uh, of course, he was cheerleading for Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon, and to be honest, even though they deny it, the National Review... Um, they did say not to vote for Trump, but the fact that they had a bunch of people writing in favor of Trump and his policies tends to tell me that if Buckley was around today, he'd be in favor of Trump just because he's a dickbag. Uh, I mentioned he was pro-Vietnam War. Obviously, he was also pro-apartheid. Another great thing to be yeah, in favor of. of course he was. Never. But obviously, there are those weird things that are also always in there. Um, he was pro-marijuana legalization as far back as 1965. And it's, I think, one of those little things that the far right tries to... Hey, look, we're not different than you. We're also in favor of weed. You should hate immigrants like we do. Um, he was also weirdly in favor of banning tobacco at the very end of his life after his wife uh, died. Uh, she was a lifelong smoker, and it probably contributed to her death. Um, he was wishy-washy on the Iraq War. 
Um, and of course, he was a vile homophobe because how could he not be? Uh, in 1988, he wrote a piece that argued that anyone with AIDS should be tattooed on the upper forearm to protect needle users and on the buttocks to prevent the victimization of other homosexuals. Right. He was a fucking monster. Um, other tidbits along his career, he helped to found Young Americans for Freedom, or YAF, which today I believe goes by a different name, Young America's Foundation. Yep. Um, basically, horrible conservative youth culture that leads to Madison Cawthorns. That's what you get when you get something like that. Uh, in 1988, he helped to defeat liberal Republican Lowell Wecker in Connecticut by forming a committee to campaign against him and openly endorsing his opponent, Joseph Lieberman. Oh, good. He gave us Joseph Lieberman. But Benedict, I will tell you, there is a light at the end of this tunnel. Because he died in his home in Stanford, Connecticut on February 27th, 2008 at the age of 82. Wow. <laughs> and I know that sounds harsh. I'm usually the kind of person who doesn't like to, you know, says, uh, you know, don't make fun of the dead guy or whatever. But I think the uh, headline from The Nation, from article written there in uh, June 1988, says it best, which is, William F. Buckley lived off, lived off evil as mold lives off garbage. Oh. Wow. I have, throughout my investigation of William F. Buckley, uh, had nothing but, I have nothing, nothing has grown in me but more contempt mm -hmm. for who he is as a human because I, I look at all these things and how they connect to everything that we know that we've looked into, going back to the John Birch Society and the development of conservatism in the United States and where we are now. And I cannot escape the realization that he is a important and central part of the radicalization of the American right that has got us to the last, you know, I, don't, I want to say the last few years, but I think that's always what we talk about now. We, we put it in, in terms of Trump, right? We always say the last few years, meaning the Trump years, but it is much broader than that. It is the rise of the white supremacist militia movement in the 1980s and 1990s. It is the rise of vile conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones in the 2000s up until now. It is in the rise of people who will gladly die of an easily preventable disease like coronavirus to own the libs. So much of it goes back to William F. Buckley and him putting this faux respectability on bullshit ideas and horrible bigotry that I've seen so much of, and we are going to experience so much of as we continue through this book review. Mm -hmm. So to rewind to my question at the beginning of what is William F. Buckley? He's a number of things, right? A racist, certainly, a homophobe, most definitely, a polemicist, a sophist, but more importantly, he is the origin point, the driving force that probably even more than the John Birch Society or Barry Goldwater himself radicalized the right into what they are today. And he didn't do that by making conservatism respectable, but pro by providing that thin veneer of respectability over the same horrible beliefs and allowing extremism cloaked in respectability to be the new core of conservative thought. And many of those people who point to the supposed changes of heart that he had later in life on issues like civil rights, but if there was any change, if Buckley ever stood up for what was right at all, he did it when it was easy. Mm. He didn't do it when he was one of the largest figures in our political life, when he had the power to actually cause change for good, being a high-profile supposed intellectual at a time when these issues were real and people were suffering. 
any change of heart he had only came after his original position was already overwhelmingly reviled, and there would be no consequence from stating that his opinion had changed. So in the end, that's what William F. Buckley is. A coward, nothing more. Okay. Seems like you have some strong feelings about William F. Buckley. I have some strong feelings, Benedict. I have some really strong feelings on this one. Even more so, I think, than Glenn Beck. Because Glenn Beck is a fucking joke. Glenn Beck always has been and always will be a fucking joke. He is a laughingstock and a punchline. Everyone, everyone out there, except for a few honest people, says that William F. Buckley was this respectable figure. That he was someone to be looked up to because he did, you know, he, he provided this uh, calmness and this clarity. And he, he kicked out, he told the John Birch Society they were bad, did that. Even though I've said multiple times, and we will talk about in the future, the John Birchers he surrounded himself with. Mm-hmm. But it was all a fucking farce. And that's what pisses me off more, is that people now are taken in by that bullshit. That's what I'm mad about. Yeah. I, I, Including... I think, oh, God, what? <laughs> Michael Knowles. Yeah. Who wrote the introduction, one of the introductions to the version of the book that you and I have. And I think I have told the story about in the past, and I probably will later when we do this book, mm-hmm. the story of me running into him in a Washington, D.C. cigar bar. I will have to tell that story. Once again, it is delightful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a question for you. Yeah. Which borough... Do you think uh, Buckley performed best in in the 1965 mayoral election in terms of percentage of the vote? See, and here's the problem. I don't remember all of uh, D.C. or all of uh, New York City's boroughs, but I'm going to say, because you brought that up, and I'm I'm guessing it's a surprising answer, but I think I know why. Harlem. No, so that that's not a borough. Ah. That's that. So Manhattan is the so the, okay. the five. Well, I don't know that shit. Come the, on. The five boroughs are Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Okay, then I will go with, ooh, which one's the most Catholic? Uh, that's a good question. Probably Staten Island, which is is, <laughs> okay, is Staten why. Okay, Staten Island. Yeah, so that, that's not surprising. That's also the most conservative borough, but I'm kind of surprised okay. that Queens, he did second best in Queens. Yeah, yeah. I said Harlem because at the time in 1965, he was making all these overtures towards being more pro-civil rights and all this sort of stuff he was going on about. Um, yeah, he so got 13% of the vote yeah, across 13%. the city, which is not great. He did not do great. No. He did not do great in that election. Yeah, but uh, we're going we're gonna to be talking about that at some point because there are some uh, speeches and things that he made uh, with regard to the 1965 election. Uh, we're going to be in an interstitial at some point going into that election in a, a little bit of a deeper look. So that'll be a whole lot of fun. So Benedict, I know you're mad at me because we went over an hour again. Again, but I do just impossible. I, 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 I noticed looking at you. the waveform right now that your your talking did cut off quite a bit after we hit that hour mark. Yeah, as it always does. Yeah, <laughs> I get tired. I get cranky. The I listeners know. do you too. You need your juice box. You need your juice box. But all right, since that's the case, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you just can't get enough of us, remember you go over to patreon.com forward slash nygbc and become a patron for as little as two dollars an episode. And if you're George Soros, we, you know, we want you. Mm-hmm. We want to be controlled. Please, Soros. Um, for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, and more. As always, we had to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons. Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, C. David, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Becky Scott Fairley, and George Soros. <laughs> 
Actually, that one's got an ampersand while Stephen and Cindy Demick has the word spelled out. Oh, okay, so you've got to do a different intonation. Becky Scott Fairley and George Soros. Uh, Stephen and Cindy Demick. AJ Brantley, Taro Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Balls Watterson. Thank you all, as always, for being our patron. We love you all so very much. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, be a hero like Spider-Man, wear a mask. Goodbye. podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.